Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. This season of Things Not Seen is sponsored in part by Loyola University's Institute for Pastoral Studies. Find out more at luc.edu slash ips. From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. On today's show, we explore how God's patient, radical love and forgiveness can reclaim and reshape our lives when we speak with Loyola University Chicago professor Timon Davis. Stay tuned. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Timon Davis. Dr. Davis is Assistant Professor of Pastoral Theology with an emphasis on Black Catholic theology at the Institute for Pastoral Studies at Loyola University in Chicago. After working for the Archdiocese of Chicago as the coordinator for Reseal, Reclaiming Christ in Life, which is one of the young adult ministries, Dr. Davis launched a business offering clinical counseling and spiritual companioning called Peace-Centered Wholeness here in Chicago. Dr. Davis also serves as the treasurer of the Black Catholic Theological Symposium, an international organization of African diaspora theologians writing and reflecting on Catholicism. Dr. Timon Davis, welcome to Things Not Seen. Oh, thank you so very much. Well, so I would like to start out because of your background in Black Catholicism. Help our listeners, first of all, understand when we talk about Black Catholicism, what are we talking about specifically? You know, typically when you think of Roman Catholic people, you think of white people or you would say German or Italian, Irish, right? And so people don't necessarily get a picture that there would be black people who are Catholic. So black Catholicism says, hey, we're here. We've been here for a long time. And let's, you know, talk a little bit about who we are as Catholic and who we are as Black people in the Roman Catholic Church. Are there specific aspects of either Catholicism or the Black religious experience that become more energized when you start to ask those kinds of questions? Well, you know, Black people are all over the spectrum. So you would find it in the spirituality, and and Black spirituality is going to have an emphasis on the community and not the individual. So it's going to come out in that way. In some communities, it's going to come out in the music because there would be, you know, the, the addition of gospel music or dance. So that would come out differently. But I don't want to say that all Black Catholic churches or worship are all one way because, you know, Black Catholics are contemplative as well. Right. And so we're covering the spectrum. But if there was one thing that I would say would capture black Catholics, it is that sense of community. And so that's something 
that I would say in the 21st century, people are really looking for a sense of community. So we have people leaving the church and things like that because they're looking for community. And that's something that we focus on. How do we continue to build community? I grew up in the Deep South and I was schooled in Tennessee. And so when I think of African-American community, the communities that come to mind would be Southern Baptist and National Baptist. If I have those as reference points, or if my listeners have those as, as reference points, those kinds of African-American communities, how would Black Catholic communities be similar to those kinds of communities? How would they differ? They'd be similar in that you, would, you can have the Black church experience in a Catholic mass, right? So you can have that, but the music and preaching are going to be limited, Right to follow the structure of the Catholic mass. So you would have that experience. But at the same time, you could also enter a different black Catholic church and go, oh, that is nothing like a black Southern Baptist church that people would have. So it's going to cross the spectrum. So what I'm hearing you saying is that there's a great deal of variety One of the things that I'm familiar with from my time with African-American church tradition in the South is call and response. When someone is saying something, there's vocal affirmation from the the body of, of believers that are there with them. To what extent does the liturgy of the mass allow for that kind of responsive expression? To what extent is the liturgy of the mass in the Catholic tradition limiting on those kinds of expressive moments? I would say the Catholic liturgy is going to embrace the call and response during the procession, right? So the procession and the recession, right? So you can have dancing and singing and drumming during that time, possibly during the offering. You're going to to have that where it's going to involve the community. You can place it there. Um, And definitely during the homily. So if the preacher is preaching in that manner, right, because you can't have Catholic preaching that is will, will remind you of Southern churches, then you will have the congregation responding to that preaching. And then the other would just be the music. And so if the music is moving somebody, then they may shout. You know, or they may stand up and and stuff. What you're not going to see too much of is some running around the church and, you know, being slain in the Holy Spirit. But you, you may not see too much of that, but you will experience that. Now, I'm aware that there's a charismatic movement within Catholicism. Yes. Where where there is the notion of a more spirit-led worship, the notion of kind of a more um, reactive kind of worship. If I was to draw a diagram and, and try and overlap black Catholic experience and the more charismatic experience, my sense is that the charismatic movement in Catholicism is often a white movement. Is that a fair characterization or or is there an overlap there between African-American movements and charismatic Catholicism? What I know about the charismatic movement is that it is multiracial, multi-ethnic. It is really not, from what I know, mostly white. Okay. So, so that's interesting because most of the people that I know in it are either Latino or African or African-American. I've only run into a few white people. So from what I have learned from them, 
is that it is quite diverse. And this is helpful for me for understanding that. Thank you. So you grew up Catholic you or are you a convert? I grew up Catholic. You grew up Catholic. And so did you grow up Catholic in the Chicago area or? In Waukegan. In, Wa- in Waukegan. In, in Waukegan, Illinois. Okay. Yeah, St. Joseph Catholic Church on Utica. What was that experience like growing up in, you were growing up in a predominantly African-American Catholic community? Or? No, predominantly okay. white okay. community, and I didn't like it. Okay. Um, it was the decision that my mother made, and I couldn't understand, why would she make such a decision to raise her kids Catholic, put them in this white church, and all of our family is Baptist or Pentecostal? So I was like, why do we get to be like the odd kid out? So I didn't like it at all. It was nothing about the Catholic faith at that time that I felt like, oh, yeah, this is just really what's happening for me. I mean, I was involved in the parish probably because we went to the school. And so while you were at the school, you were involved in the parish. So this this particular parish had a great relationship with the school and the church. So it was kind of seamless from my memory. But it... it it was not anything that I was just like, oh, great, you know, I'm Catholic. This is just so wonderful. It was just like, this is like the worst thing since whatever. I'm like, why did she decide this for us? And I carried that attitude well into college. Did she ever talk to you about why she made that decision? She did. She said that when there was a need in her life, the Catholic Church met it. And so she decided to convert. And so when her children were born, she brought them up in a Catholic church. But you characterize that as a pretty negative experience, and you say it carried that through college. What, oh, yeah. what was negative about it in particular, and then what changed for you when you got to college, or did it change? Nothing for changed for me in college, okay. so let me be clear. Uh, nothing changed in college. Well, for me, it was this... So now we can get into aspects of the liturgy that don't seem to speak to people, right? So we were in this liturgy where they're singing songs that don't seem to be applicable to one's life. And there's the preaching that doesn't seem to be applicable. And as a kid, you're just like, whatever. And then there's this whole surrounding of white people that is just like, why are we here where we obviously are not wanted? So I was born in 62. So we're talking that there's still a volatile time, even though I was living in Waukegan, where things were not the same as being in Chicago. But still in Waukegan, you could feel the bite of racism and people who did not want you around. They just were more polite about it. So I felt that as a kid. And then, you know, when I got to high school, I went to Carmel High School in Mundelein. I felt it there as well, that it was, you know, sure, I made friends. Sure, there were people who were who were great. But overall, I believe that if my Black self wasn't there, they would be just as happy And, you know, why are you here anyway? So that carried on to college, even though I did go to a Catholic university as well. I went to St. Louis University in St. Louis, Missouri. And I just was like, whatever, I'm in the same type of environment. So I didn't really get an exposure to an African-American Catholic church. It's one time. While I was in college, I think it was my senior year, St. Alphonsus the Rock that's in St. Louis. And that was just like, wow, like this exists. 
but it wasn't strong enough, I don't think, to pull me in because it was my senior year. I was going back home and I didn't seek that out. So I didn't come across another African-American Catholic church until the early 90s. And that began the transition. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We'll be back in a moment. I'm David Dalt, host of Things Not Seen, conversations about culture and faith, heard each week here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. I want to invite you to a very special event. On Monday, September 24th at 6 p.m., we'll be doing a live taping of Things Not Seen at the Seminary Co-op Bookstore on Woodlawn Avenue near the University of Chicago in Hyde Park. I'll be talking with John Fee about his new book, Believe Me, The Evangelical Road to Donald Trump. The book looks at the politics and history behind the unprecedented election of 2016, when close to 80% of evangelicals helped propel Donald Trump to the White House. The event is free and open to the public. You can RSVP at semcoop.com. That's semcoop.com. So join us Monday, September 24th at 6 p.m. for a live taping of Things Not Seen at the Seminary Co-op Bookstore in Hyde Park. It's going to be a fantastic conversation. I'll look forward to seeing you there. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Timon Davis. She's assistant professor of pastoral theology with an emphasis in black Catholic theology at the Institute for Pastoral Studies at Loyola University in Chicago. Before the break, you were talking about an experience when you were in St. Louis and you had gone to an African-American Catholic church and your eyes were sort of opened by that, but that wasn't enough, you said, to pull you back. What was it that began to uh, bring you back into the orbit of Catholicism? And along the way, did you look at other religious traditions? Did you look at other ways of being Christian? I definitely looked at other ways because my family, you know, the extended family, were Christian. And so I would visit their churches. But for for me, it didn't speak to anything beneath. And, and I want to say that it didn't speak to me simply because I was having this negative relationship with God. God wasn't present doing what God needed to do. And I felt in my life. Right. And so why bother? You know, so if you are not answering my prayers and doing what would get me out of some negative situations, situations that I thought growing up warranted an answer or a response from God, I said, well, why am I bothering to engage in this relationship? And so I stayed with that attitude because I didn't necessarily see anything changing. Um, It wasn't until I got married and I, the man I married had two children and We moved to Chicago after I got out of the military. We moved to Chicago where I had found a job. And I was like, well, of course, they have to go to a Catholic school. Now, just because I was anti-God at the moment, right, didn't mean that I didn't understand the value of Catholic education. I understood that, right, because I had been in Catholic institutions all of my education. So I was like, well, they definitely won't be in Chicago public school. We just definitely will have to come up with the money. And so we had them in a school that it was pretty nice and I didn't have any problems with it, but we moved them to St. Elizabeth Catholic Church on 41st in Michigan. And one of the requirements at that school was that you had to attend mass. Um, And I, I was like, why? 
Well, what is the purpose of that? And well, you just, that's our rule. And I said, well, do we get a discount on tuition? Because you also, when I attend mass, you're expecting me to give in the offering. So if I'm going to be doing that, does that take some money off of tuition? You know, the answer was no, but I definitely asked it because at that time I was just anti-worship, but not anti-education. Right. So Catholic worship, I should say, but not anti-Catholic education. So I went to the church. You know, I would do anything for the children. So I went to the church and for the first time in a long time, when I had stepped into a Catholic church, this pastor knew his parishioners well enough to know who was visitors, like from the when you walk across the threshold. And it was like, welcome to St. Elizabeth. I'm glad you're joining us for the first time. And I was surprised by that. Like, you know your people well enough to know when somebody comes for the first time. And, and I went to the early mass because I was like, you know, I get it over and done with so it won't ruin my Sunday. And on the way out, he said, thank you for coming. And you might want to try our gospel mass. And I was like, gospel mass? He said, yeah, that one's later. And I think it was like 1030 or 11 or something like that. And I said, okay, sure. And when I walked away, I said, why did I tell him yes? I'm only required to go to one mass a month. And why did I say I would be back the following week? And I angst over that for the whole week. Now, was this pastor Caucasian? Was he African-American? Uh, no, he was Caucasian. Okay. Matter of fact, he was, I think, of Irish descent, I believe. And in St. Elizabeth, at the time, is uh, an SVD parish in the Archdiocese, the Society of Divine Word. And for my listeners who may be evangelical. That's a, yeah, that's a religious-ordered community of men and so it was not an archdiocesan-run church, but a religious community-run church. And so he was from that society, and that society or that particular religious community has a missionary charism. So it, it would not have been unheard of. It would be a white man that would be in an African-American parish. But I went back, right? So the, the following week, and then he started introducing me to people. How did that make you feel? Dude, why are you doing this? Why are you bothering me in this way? We're going to be having a women's retreat and you should come. And I was like, no, I don't think so. And it seemed like every time I went, because remember now, I had to go at least once a month. And every time I went, he was introducing me to more people. And then those people started saying, we'll see you next week. And I was like, sure you will. And I was like, why did I tell them? Sure, they will. And before you knew it, I was going every week and chatting with people and getting involved. And I would say after a year, he asked me to get involved in the RCIA program. And I said, what the hell is that? And what is the RCIA program? Right. And I said, "That's." he said, it's the right of Christian initiation of adults. And I said, and what the hell is that? And he said, it's when people want to convert or come into the Catholic Church as an adult, they go through these series of classes and things where they can learn about the faith and transition. 
I was like, dude, I am not the one to be helping people come into the Catholic church. You're lucky to see me every week. And he bugged me until I said yes. And that was the beginning of me journeying with people while they were making their transition from one faith or no faith to the Catholic church to me being transformed by them. And when you say transformed by them, how do you mean? Well, remember now I had this relationship with God where God wasn't present and God wasn't doing what God needed to do in my life. But when you're listening to other people's witness story, you're able to take a look at your own life and your own story and be able to see, well, God actually was there, but maybe I wasn't paying attention. And so I I had to do a lot of discerning and looking at, was I really open to God and what God was doing, even though I thought God was not answering my prayers. What does what does the answer look like, right? So if I had shaped the answer and then I didn't get what I had already shaped, then God wasn't answering. But when you're open to asking and open then to receiving whatever the response is, then you find that God is indeed journeying with you. And so that was the discovery that I was making while I was journeying with other people. Now, was the priest aware of this turmoil that was going on with you? Had you shared any of that with him? Of course I did. That was why I told him I didn't think I was a great person to be journeying with people who are trying to convert to Catholicism. I'm like, are you serious? I said, I'm just really trying to get this together myself. I don't think I'm the right person. And did he give you any explanation or did he just keep pushing? I mean, I'm I'm interested in kind of how he... I didn't get an explanation. Okay. I really did. Not beyond that, except, you know, I need your help and you're the one that's available. And um, I would say um, after three years, so I did that for, for three years before I went back and was like, dude, if I'm going to keep doing this, I'm I'm going to need a class. I said, I, I, I can't do this irresponsibly like this. You know, this is ridiculous. I mean, you need training. You need, right. Yeah. And he was just like, oh, okay. Well, the Archdiocese has a class that you could take and you would be certified as a catechist. And I was like, hey, what the hell is that? You know, I, I mean, I I call myself in those days, a reluctant disciple, Mm. right? Because I was kicking and screaming all the way to, what is this? And why is this? And and, and why are you picking me? And I don't really understand. And Okay, fine. And in that process, I think because I had those questions of why me, I was open to the responses, And not just from the pastor, right, from God. And when you get the response of, well, why not you? What is it about you that you, you can't do this work that I'm asking you to do? And so then, you know, as we all do, we do a litany of what we've done wrong. And I'm sure... Even our your listeners would have like, oh, yeah, I got a litany, right? And that litany is usually longer than the things that we've done right. And while I was in the process this one particular day of uh, letting the Lord know that I was the wrong person because of this litany of things that I had done wrong, 
God said, is not my forgiveness enough? Is not my forgiveness enough? Why do you keep bringing it up when I have forgiven you? And how did that hit you when you had that that realization? Just about like it's hitting me now as I recount it, right? That's powerful. That's like, wow, you know. Okay. Well, well, yeah, you know, like, yeah. No was not an option at that point. And so when you receive forgiveness, that changes everything, right? That you you have a different look on your own self and and you're open to uh, more things. I think part of the my my biggest problem was that I couldn't forgive myself. And so to come face to face with God's forgiveness set me on the journey of forgiving myself. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Dr. Timon Davis, Assistant Professor of Pastoral Theology with an emphasis in Black Catholic Theology at the Institute for Pastoral Studies at Loyola University in Chicago. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. We're speaking today with Dr. Timon Davis, Assistant Professor of Pastoral Theology with an emphasis in Black Catholic Theology at the Institute for Pastoral Studies at Loyola University in Chicago. So I want to shift direction a little bit and talk about the Black Catholic Theological Symposium. A few moments ago in the conversation, you talked about Latinoa experience and other types of experiences. I'm aware that the Black Catholic Theological Symposium has done work across the boundary lines with other minority theological associations, like the Association of Hispanic Theologians, and it's got an acronym that I can't pretend Octus. to. Octus, I guess. Yes. Is what, yeah. The Association of Catholic Hispanic Theologians of the United States. That would be the one. Talk to me about what it has been like to be doing work across those kind of lines and to bring a more intersectional conversation to theological discourse. I think one of the most important things to me is talking about oppression of black and brown bodies and that the dialogue helps us not be used as pawns where in a racially charged environment, the black body is not pit against the brown body, right? to say that, oh, all the Hispanics are taking the jobs. Well, that's pitting one group against another group. We know that that's not true. So when you begin to speak to one another, 
you really look at, well, what's really the issue? The, the, the issue is not you and it's not me, right? When we're talking about black and brown. But the issue is this system of racism that is in place in the United States. And it's affecting all of us, even white people, right? So it's affecting all of us. Now, when you take that dialogue and you immerse it into theology, then you're looking at, well, what is God saying about all of this? How do we understand what God is speaking to us? And how does what we're hearing How can that be shared with the wider world, right? So if I don't talk about my experiences as a Black woman in the United States, how do you as a white male know what I'm experiencing? You don't. You have no interest in it, right? It does not affect your day-to-day. So it is important, right, for those of us of color, those of us who are theologians, to now open up our experience for you to better see what is going on. How do we remain faithful in a time such as this? Well, the only way is that we begin to share our stories, right? So I have a story of faith that I just shared, but what does that mean for you? As a white male in this milieu, what does that mean? How do you connect? Well, we connect, right, at our human experience. That's where we connect. And then when we connect there, then we can better look at what are the things that are trapping us in this system of racism, right? Because that's a system. And it invites us to not understand it as a system that oppresses. Well, you know, the only way it can continue to do that and find purchase, right, is if we don't talk. Well, and what strikes me is earlier you talked about the parish in Waukegan where you grew up and you said, if you had not been there, they would have been just as happy. And and the, so. the the ignoring of and the erasing, if I can use that word, of your experience lived within that parish, that was profound for you, but it wasn't profound for them. They were ignorant of that. And you ask me as a white person, as a white male, to listen to your experience. White males like me are so invested in not listening to your experience generationally. Mm-hmm. How do we get not just people who have been oppressed in their bodies to speak, how do we get those who have benefited from the oppression generation upon generation to stop and notice and listen? Oh, we keep talking. Amen. We we do. We keep talking and we keep having opportunities such as this, right? Because someone is going to listen to this and be like, really? I hope so. I I, I didn't know, Mm. right? We cannot assume that everybody knows. Sure, it's 2018. You would think that by now, right? But we cannot make that assumption. People's voices are still being silenced. So we have to, you know, when the Black Catholic Theological Symposium looks at issues, we're looking at the issues 
not only through the lens of what it means to be black, but also what does it mean to be white in the situation where this is happening? So when we put out a statement in conjunction with Octus about police violence against black and brown bodies, the statement was not just, hey, look at us, we're shouting about this, but it was, hey, we are people. And this is morally wrong, right? That, that, that we have to start talking about things that are morally wrong, ethically wrong, th- instead of just, okay, it's black and white. It's a black, it's black and white issue. It's racism. Oh, well, you know, racism has been around. Well, no. So we're talking about it in ways that people can understand. How does someone really understand privilege, right? We hear a lot in the media about white privilege, but I sit before you with black privilege as well. What does that mean? Well, you know, I was educated in Catholic schools. That's a privilege. My parents paid for that, right? Not everybody can pay for education. That's a privilege. You you understand what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So if you don't have the money to do certain things, then you don't have a particular privilege. So even being black, I was in a privileged way going to Catholic grammar school, high school, and undergrad. That's a privilege as a black person that doesn't have the same for someone else who has to go through public school because they don't have the wherewithal. I was probably in high school before I saw my first food stamp, Mm. right? So I don't know anything about what that means to get welfare assistance monthly. I don't know anything about that. I don't know anything about hunger, Mm -hmm. right? But there are people who do. So that's what I mean by... There is privilege, black and white, you know, Latino and white and black. So there's privilege. And I think what we have to begin to to talk about more is privilege and how privilege also oppresses. Right. So so we have to really open this up and get beyond that. It is white and black. It is also economics that are a part of this. I think the more we talk, the more we'll find out that this is a multi-layered issue. Mm-hmm. When we talk about racism, racism, right, is this construct so that you can keep certain groups of people in a particular place so that you could benefit what? Economically. That's the whole point of it. It's for somebody else to benefit economically. But we all need to understand that as a construct, and as oppression all around. Now, you talk about being a person who was raised in Catholic educational circumstances. So you went to Catholic school and you went to Catholic high school, but you now teach in a Catholic college. Mm -hmm. How does this experience come out now, your lived experience for your students? When you translate this into the classroom, what does that look like? What does that sound like? My vision and mission is to speak truth so that people can become aware of God in their life. 
That's the basis of what I do, whether I'm in the classroom, whether or not I am speaking publicly, giving a lecture, I'm doing a workshop. Let me speak truth so that people can come to know God in their life. Because I, out of my own experience, I did not know that God was there. And so I think when you help people understand that God is present, it can shape the way they approach things. So in the classroom, whatever the subject is, so right now I'm doing pastoral leadership, I'm teaching pastoral leadership, and I am teaching principles of religious education. What I hope to get across in both classes is that at the core of whatever it is you're doing is you the person. And you the person and whatever relationship that you have with God comes through as a leader or as a religious educator. If you are struggling in that relationship with God, that's what you put out. And so I'm helping people first pay attention to what's happening with you, you the individual, whether or not you're Catholic, whether you're Protestant, whether you're a rabbi, whether you've decided that you don't want to believe in God, you are having a relationship with something and you need to understand that relationship. And once you understand that, then you can move on to begin to understand leadership or you can begin to understand what it means to be a religious educator. You can't do those things well if you're not understanding your own self and your relationship to the supreme being. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Timon Davis. She's Assistant Professor of Pastoral Theology with an emphasis in Black Catholic Theology at the Institute for Pastoral Studies at Loyola University in Chicago. We'll be back in a moment. So for those of you that are longtime listeners to Things Not Seen, you may be aware that I do another show called The Francis Effect with my friend Dan Haran. He's a Franciscan priest. Every couple of weeks, he and I get together to bring you commentary on current events from a perspective informed by our Catholic faith. Now, Dan, why should I be talking to you? Who are you? Who am I? I'm a Franciscan friar, a Roman Catholic priest, and a professor of theology here in Chicago. And That's a good question. I have no idea why you should be talking with me, but if people are interested in what a conversation between you, the otherwise uh, respectable host of Things Not Seen, and me, the not-so-respectable Roman Catholic priest and theologian, I think they should tune in. Yeah, they should definitely tune in. So that's The Francis Effect, and you can find it at francisfxpod.com. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Timon Davis. She's Assistant Professor of Pastoral Theology with an emphasis in Black Catholic Theology at the Institute for Pastoral Studies at Loyola University in Chicago. So you're talking about how you are translating your experience into the classroom. And one of the things that you're highlighting here is you're trying to enliven students to their own experiences. First of all, am I hearing that correctly? You are, indeed. That makes me think of James Cone. And when he talks about 
the lived black experience being an important source for theological maneuvering. Mm-hmm. And so you are carrying from the beginning of the conversation through, I'm, I'm sensing this through line of the experience that you had as a black body in all white settings growing up. And when you went to St. Louis, you had that experience as well. I'm hearing this through line of you're now using that experience as a pivot point to invite others to bring their own experience. So you're, am, yes. I, am I hearing correctly? Yes, because we each have an experience. Yes. And in order for us to break down barriers, mm-hmm. we have to acknowledge one another's experience as valued. But also as vulnerable. I'm also as hearing vulnerable. vulnerability too. So oh, value definitely. and vulnerability, that yes. tension. Yeah. Yes. That's scary though. Very much so. <laughs> Very much so. So I don't ask my students to do anything that I am not willing to do with them. So if I'm asking them to share something, let's say from their childhood that, you know, what is your image of God when you were 10, mm. for example? Well, I share my image of God. What was it? You know, I uh, my image of God was the white bearded man who sits on the throne and ruled. Right. Because that's what you do when you sit on the throne, you rule. And then I invite them to look at their image of God now. Mm. Now, if there's no change, they need to know that. Right. So, like, I still have the same image of God as when I was 10. Then they need to understand that's how they're making decisions and that's how they're relating. And is that still the image that they want to carry? It's fine with me. I'm not trying to judge the image, but I want to help them bring forth the image. Who is God for you? And your understanding of that then speaks to how you are in other relationships. Something happened and that's what we go back to. Or no one has ever opened me up to another image of God. Well, in this process of having grown yourself from a, a resistance to faith, if I may characterize it that way, into not only a faith of your own, but now a faith that has animated your teaching and the way that you have sort of put yourself into the academy, I have to ask, what is it that keeps you hopeful? What is it that keeps you your strength up and going from day to day? The love of God. Tell me about the love the of love, God. The, the love of God is in so much of my life, right? That God asked me to be present, to give my all, to share myself, to journey with other people. I do it because I love God. I don't necessarily always find it enjoyable, right? And I think that's something that people could probably relate to. We think that when we are in love with God and um, we're doing what God says, that it's just going to be really nice and wonderful and have nice, warm fuzzies and life is going to be grand. But life is going to be grand, but it's not necessarily going to be wrapped in warm fuzzies, right? It's going to be difficult because God, God asks for my continual transformation, for me to continuously drop my resistance, for me to continuously move into an area that I can't see and understand. That's hard. That's difficult. You know, I think we get we get comfortable. I like where I'm at right now. This is working. I know what this is all about. I can kind of sense it. And God keeps calling us forward to new experiences of God and God's people. 
Well, in order to do that, we have to keep making ourselves uncomfortable. And, you know, that's hard to just willfully walk into. So that's difficult. That's hard. But I am having the best life ever because I am choosing to walk with God. I'm having the best life ever. I remember life without acknowledging God in my life. I remember life with nose on my tongue all the time to God. And I can see the misery, right? Now, that doesn't mean that I don't have disappointments and setbacks now. But with God, man, it is so much easier. Uh, Jesus says, take my yoke because my, my yoke is, is, is light, right? It's, it's easier. I heard a sermon about this yoke piece and I had never knew before. A yoke, he says, is custom made for the animal. You don't just put any old thing on the animal. And then when you yoke, you are yoked in pairs. So it's usually one animal that knows how to do it and the other animal that doesn't. And so to be yoked to Jesus, right, is to first understand that whatever yoke that Jesus is going to put on me is going to be custom made for me so that it is comfortable and it is not heavy. And that in being with this yoke and whatever it is that I have to pull, to know that Jesus is right with me, not in front of me, not behind me, but with me as I move through whatever needs to be moved through, right? So that there's this companion of Jesus in this being yoked, right? And so I was like, whoa, dude, you should have been preaching years ago. I needed to hear that years ago, right? But it made very good sense. And so I think that's something that we have to understand, like when we're reading scripture, that scripture is written for a specific time and place. And for us to fully understand it, we have to understand what that time and place is, right? So what would I know about a yoke? unless I was a farmer, right? Or whatever, or I'm dealing with cattle. So those are things that we have to break open. And that's why the word of God continues to live because we keep finding stuff in it that we need to research and break open and come to a better understanding and then say, okay, now that I have that understanding, how does it apply to me? And and how do I move forward? So I'm having a blast as I continue to be stretched, to be challenged, because I have my own biases and and things like that. And God keeps calling me out of that. If I was to leave people with one thing who are listening to this is to know that we are loved. All we need do is accept the love and then allow that love to transform us. That's it. Well, Dr. Timon Davis, I'm inspired by the bravery that you show in the classroom and the candor that you've brought to this conversation. I want to thank you on behalf of our listeners for being here today. Oh, you're so welcome. It was my delight. Dr. Davis is Assistant Professor of Pastoral Theology with an emphasis on Black Catholic Theology at the Institute for Pastoral Studies at Loyola University in Chicago. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park here on the south side of Chicago. 
Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC is responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. It's made possible in part through the generosity of our supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and to find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us. <laughs>